Guys, we're going to be uh, in Luke chapter 9. Uh, if you need a Bible, raise your hand, and we've got some ushers that will get one to you. Um, I got one more message for us on Luke 9, 1 through 6. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I think six messages on those verses is enough. Uh, we are going to be in uh, verses 7 through 9 this morning. Um, let me read that. Give you a moment to find it, read it, pray, and uh, dive in here. So Luke 9, beginning in verse 7. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was happening. So he's hearing about what's going on with the the 12 as they're sent out into the regions and things, and uh, Jesus is on the move. Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Let's pray. Lord, you know. You know where my heart has been going with this text and this message. God, I am wanting, I am begging, I'm asking your spirit to fall. In this place. I'm praying. That Isaiah's vision. Of a holy, holy, holy God. Would be granted to us. That we would see Lord our mouths shut. Before you. God we repent. We ask your mercy that we so often put you on the dock and make you answer to us. God, it is we who will answer to you. You are in the heavens. You do all that you please, all that you will. You are God and there is no other. God, I pray. I pray in this room that you would expose us in the most loving, kind, and gracious way. You'd expose the lies that we hide behind, the guilt that we try to numb or rid ourselves of, one technique or another. I pray you'd bring the darkness in us to the light. Not to inflict pain, not to mock, but to heal, to bring refreshing, to bring us back to sanity. I'm praying you do all this and more 
through the preaching of your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, it is always interesting. I, I mean, I love my job. It's amazing because I, I just get to mine God's word uh, and then bring it to you guys. Um, and it, 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 it amazes me uh, how I can go week to week and not have any clue what I'm actually going to find here. I'll think I have a sense of where I'm going to go. And then I, I look a little bit deeper in the text and I go, okay, we're going in a different direction. It's funny. I probably drive Sally crazy because I, I try to give her a sense of my content, themes, text, whatever on Wednesday so she can pick some songs, right? But I really don't have my first study day really with the text until Thursday. And um, so typically I can give her an idea on Wednesday just by reading the text and kind of looking at what uh, I think, you know, where I think I'll be going. But sometimes, like this week, on Thursday, I dive a little deeper into the Word. I start doing some cross-references, start writing a little bit, praying a little bit, and things just open up in ways that I wouldn't have otherwise seen. And that is what's happened with this text here. I kind of thought I'd fly over verses 7 through 9, but instead, I think I saw gold here, and I want to show you. Um, so the title of today's message, it might at first seem like it's coming out of uh, left field, um, but I trust as we get in here that you will see where I'm getting this. Uh, the title is the, the Restless Unsettling of a guilty conscience, the restless unsettling of a guilty conscience. We're going to talk today about guilt, probably not a popular topic, but an important one. We're going to talk about guilt and the way that it gnaws at the soul of every single human being, how it hounds or dogs us, whether we deny it or not, and how this kind of low-grade static of guilt that remains in us, if un, un, or improperly dealt with, uh, we're going to see how it kind of trends towards insanity, towards madness, towards doing whatever we can to cover it up, and before long, we, we're losing our minds. We're losing our minds. It eats away at a person's mind, heart, soul, and even body. It spreads like a cancer until it consumes its host. It's the sort of thing that I think we actually see in play here with Herod. And I'll take the time to show you that at the beginning here. But I wonder, even at the outset, if this sort of thing is at work in us. A guilt that we just can't seem to get rid of and it's driving us crazy so this morning we're going to look at first herod's maddening guilt second our insufficient dealings and third the only way out the only way out so first, Herod's maddening guilt. I want to give you a little bit of background here, and we'll kind of make our way uh, towards this point. Herod Antipas, he was um, one of the many sons of Herod the Great. 
And he was, as you see it there in verse 7, tetrarch, which was basically like a, a minor kind of ruler at this time, over in particular uh, Galilee and Perea. Those regions were kind of his realm. And um, if you remember, he's already made an appearance in Luke's gospel up to this point. We met him back in uh, Luke chapter 3. And I wonder if you recall the scenario there. What we had there was uh, John the Baptist is calling Herod out for certain ways that he has broken Jewish law. He is rebelling against God. He is, he is guilty. He is in the wrong. Herod had divorced his wife so that he could take his brother's wife, Herodias. And John is unashamedly letting that be known to Herod and to any who would hear. And since this would be bad publicity for a ruler over a Jewish people, Herod decides, yeah, it's time to shut John's mouth. So we read this in verses 19 and 20 of Luke chapter 3. For all the evil things that Herod had done, he added this to them all. He locked up John in prison. So John's calling him out. It's not good for his, his public image. We're going to get you out of the public square and into a prison cell. That's first background that's important. But Herod will do more, we realize, than imprison John. He will ultimately kill him. When we come to uh, this in Luke's gospel, the other gospels, man, they go into gruesome, grisly detail in terms of how uh, Herod went about killing John the Baptist. Luke just simply, this is it. This is his recording of it right here in his gospel. Just right there in verse 9, just John I beheaded. Just Herod mentioning it as if it were just kind of in passing. But we know... Though it sounds simple here in verse 9 of our text, we know from Matthew and Mark that it was not so simple a situation for Herod. This beheading of John. Um, in fact, it's, it's, it's interesting. But what we see is that it seems like Herod didn't even really want to kill John. He was happy to silence him, get him out of the public scene, get him in prison. But he didn't want to kill John. He ended up killing John, calling for John's head, because uh, essentially his hands were tied through an oath he made to his wife's daughter. And Herodias wanted John killed for all the things he was saying, not just imprisoned. But what we read when we go um, to, say, Mark's gospel, for example, is that Herod actually, though he was aggravated by John, frustrated with him, humiliated with him, perhaps, he revered John. He even feared him. Mark 6.20 says this, Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. Did you hear that? I'm not going to touch this man. The most I'll do is get him behind bars. That's it. But this guy, I, you know, I may be dense, but this guy is holy. I can see that. 
It's kind of a superstitious religiosity to Herod. He didn't want to kill John. Nevertheless, his hands were tied. And though Mark tells us in verse 26 of chapter 6, the king was exceedingly sorry, he still called for John the Baptist's head to come to him on a platter. I don't want to do it. I'm sorry to do it. But off with his head. And it seems that somewhere in the whirlwind of all this wickedness, Herod actually starts to lose his head as well. Now we're starting to get to this idea of Herod's maddening guilt. Now, admittedly, Luke doesn't bring this out as clearly for us um, as the other gospel writers do. When we read our text in Luke, what we kind of get the sense is this. News of Jesus' ministry and his disciples' ministry in the surrounding regions has reached the palace. It's reached Herod. And Herod, along with everybody else, is trying to figure out who this Jesus is. What is the stir in the community? And who is this man, Jesus? And so it seems like in our text, uh, Herod is kind of sitting back and considering the various options. Uh, perhaps he is a resurrected John the Baptist, they're saying. Perhaps he is kind of a returned Elijah. Perhaps he is some other prophet from of old. But when we go to the parallel accounts in the other Gospels, there is something that Luke is he's not bringing out here because he's, he's actually ascending to the climactic confession of Peter coming later in, in chapter 9. That Jesus is the Christ. He's not so interested in Herod's thoughts here. Just that everyone was stirring, wondering who he is. But Herod actually, in the other accounts, is shown not to just be deliberating on this subject, but actually to have come to a conviction about who Jesus is. And I want you to see that because it's where you start to get to this, this, this uh, unsettling, this restlessness that, that a guilty conscience um, stirs in a man. This is uh, Mark 6, 14 and through 16. It says, the King Herod heard of it, the stuff going on in the region. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work on him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. There's our three things that Luke even records for us. But then verse 16. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. This is John. I'm sure of it. John is back and, and, and walking the streets and he's coming for me. On this text one commentator writes, Herod clung somberly to the view suggested by his own uneasy conscience. And the very starkness of the words, whom I beheaded, in verse 16, emphasizes his self-torture. You see, he knows his guilt. He was exceedingly sorry. He killed a righteous and holy man. 
He knows he's been in the wrong, that through the whole thing, trying to shut up John and stop, you know, his guilt from being made known. He just added guilt upon guilt. And now John, whom I beheaded, has been raised in Jesus. I'm sure of it. I knew I was going to be found out. I knew this wasn't going to go well for me. Uneasy conscience, self-torture, maddening guilt. Herod is perplexed when he hears about Jesus and these things going on. He is anxious, even terrified. He is certain it is John. You know, it's interesting that I didn't have this in my notes. It's always dangerous to mention a TV show. Because <laughs> you don't, I don't stand for everything a TV show puts forward. But we just watched um, Bloodline not too long ago. It's a, it's a series on Netflix. And basically the entire show, it starts with this family where everything seems like it's awesome. And they have this resort on the, the coast of Florida there. And everything seems great. And a couple of sins, a couple of significant um, guilt-ridden sins that they try to cover up and hide and erase from the past as if you could do that sort of thing, causes this family and their perfect little story to just unravel. And the whole two episodes or two or three seasons, I can't remember how many there are, just is watching this guilt destroy them and the paranoia where around every corner you're sure people know that you did it you're sure that people know you're guilty no matter how much you put on a smile the guy was a cop the main character playing the righteous one and you just watch him physically corrode on the screen The restless unsettling of a guilty conscience. Guilt insufficiently dealt with has a way of distorting the mind. Spiraling kind of towards irrationality, even insanity. Herod uh, was a man who knew he was guilty. But it seems he was not quite clear on how to deal with that guilt. And so the question that now is going to loom large from this point on over this sermon is, do we? <laughs> do we know how to deal with the guilt that plagues us all? So now I want to move into our insufficient dealings. As I... Um, considered this scene with Herod and thought about the ways that we approach guilt and try to hide it, cover it up, change it, get rid of it one way or another, I just started thinking about the various, um, well, the various strategies. Or I started thinking about our insufficient dealings. I have four of them um, for you here this morning, though, as always, I, I didn't bring out everything I could have. Uh, I think these are perhaps some of the more common ways that we try to come at our guilt insufficiently. The first one, denial. Denial. 
um, denial can take on many forms. But probably the most common form of denial would be um, kind of how we retell the story. We learn to retell the story to ourselves, to others, in a way that uh, removes our guilt or justifies our actions. If you have kids, man, you get a, a, a picture of this probably every day. Either that or my kids are more depraved than, than others. But it's every day in my house. Uh, just to paint a general scene, I hear some screaming coming from the living room. You know, typically it's Bella who's letting out, you know, some sort of a wail. And I, 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 I walk into the room to see what is going on between Chloe and Bella now. And everything stops. And they look at me. I say, okay. Tell me, what was going on here? And I'm telling you, it is amazing how you can recount the same, the same series of events in such radically different ways. The way that they do this is masterful. It is masterful. It is incredible. Because they will be able to tell me the story in such a way that they exonerate themselves of all guilt, that they assure themselves of their own innocence. I have had to face, I'm seriously, I will look at me, I'm like, I have no idea. What, what do we say? I mean, I didn't sign up to be a judge, an arbiter between these sorts of things. I am facing judicial decisions on a daily basis that I don't even think Solomon and all his wisdom would know what to do. I'm like, what do I do with the pink crayon that you're, 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 let me break it in half, you know, like Solomon did with the, yeah, anybody, no, that didn't work either. But Why? Here's the question. Why? why? Why is it so hard? Why is it so hard to get to the truth? Why is it so hard to get to what actually happened in my living room in those moments? I'll tell you why. Denial. This. The retelling, the rescripting, the reshaping of the narrative so that I am innocent and it's all somebody else. Not me. We grow skilled at denying, at running from, at hiding our guilt. And the more we do it, the more we believe it, the more settled it kind of becomes. And yet, we know it's not right. We know we're lying. There's something rumbling underneath like San Andreas under San Francisco. We know there's something under all that we're building. That the foundation isn't quite right. Everyone's been made in the image of God. However marred, <laughs> the image is still there. Everyone, the Bible says, God has written his law on their heart. That they're aware that they will give an account to a holy God. They're aware of right and wrong. They will see it plainly in you and in those around them and in historical record. Nobody looks at Hitler and says, well, I mean, was he right or wrong? It's all relative. But when you bring it to them, denial, denial. Romans 1 makes this idea abundantly clear. Romans 1, 18 to 22, Paul writes this, men, 
by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. He's not just talking about Jews. He's talking about everyone, everywhere. God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools. Do you see how denial and, and this insufficient dealing of guilt tends towards insanity? Claiming to be innocent, we become more guilty. Claiming to be wise, we become more foolish. But they know, we know, we have rebelled against the holy God. There is guilt in our souls. There is blood on our hands. It's interesting in... um, uh, one of my classes in seminary, one of my, one of my professors talked about this dynamic in Romans 1 this way. I thought it was a helpful illustration. He said, okay, y- you read about how everyone is suppressing the truth in their unrighteousness. They are trying to push down the idea that God is there, that they will give an account, that they're not all right, that they're not as awesome as they think they are. They're trying to push that down. And he says, you want to know what it's like? It's like trying to keep down a, a beach ball. When you're pushing it under the water at the ocean, something like that, go out into the water, try to push that beach ball down. He said, the moment you stop attending to that and you walk away, it just pops right back up. You can't keep it down. Although uh, they tried and they exchanged and all this stuff, they still knew. They still knew So the best they could do if you follow Romans 1 is just surround themselves with others who don't care. Let's surround ourselves with others who will tell us we're fine too. And suppress it with us. But it's this idea of a beach ball held under the water. Just keeps popping up. It might sound like a fun game to play with your kids or something. But when that beach ball is an awareness of your guilt before a holy God, it is not a game. It is a nightmare. Because no matter what you do, you can't deny it. You can't erase it. This sense of your own guilt before a holy God. It doesn't work. Denial doesn't work. It only engenders further madness. Second insufficient dealing would be what I would call pushback. So denial and a pushback. Often our denial actually really leads to pushback. And it's kind of where I was um, about to go there with my kids in the living room. While we're trying to deny our guilt, others are often able to see it quite plainly. And they will bring it up. They will point it out. They will talk to you about it. And how are you going to respond to that? If you are vehemently trying to deny your guilt, the only way to respond to someone pointing out your guilt is to push back. 
This is where our denial takes an outward face, you might say. This is where uh, denial starts to move out and against those who might tell us otherwise. It's not enough for me just to deny my guilt. I need to attack those who are pointing it out in me, blame others for my actions, redirect attention elsewhere so I can feel better about myself. The, the classic example of this um, is one I go to often, right? Genesis 3. It's really the paradigm. It really is the paradigm for human nature. And you just watch it play out all the time. It is the biblical story in miniatures. You watch God even come and cover and all these things. But Genesis 3 begins with the sin of Adam and Eve, right? And then God coming to call them to account, to point it out. This is not right. What happened? And here's what we see, right? It's just fingers pointing in every direction. Adam, what have you done? The woman. Eve, what have you done? The snake. Everyone else but me, God. A pushing back on the accusation. A pushing back on the idea of guilt. An even more pronounced and perhaps profound example comes um, when, 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 when Stephen, he's, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. This is Acts 7. Filled with the Holy Spirit. He, he has this, this face like an angel, we're told, just glowing. But he's got some words for uh, his, fellow, his fellow Israelites that are not so uh, friendly. He's got to bring out their guilt. And the way that they rejected God and his Messiah. And he's, he's giving this, this declaration, this, this proclamation to uh, these people. And this is kind of how he concludes Acts 7, 51 to 53. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, Jesus Christ. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. He's saying, man, Jews, how could you miss the Messiah? How could you turn on him? Oh, that's right. It makes sense. We've been turning on him from the beginning. We're doing just what our fathers have always done, killing the prophets and now killing the Christ that they prophesied about. He's exposing, he's pointing out their guilt. Now, how do they respond to this? How do they respond? Well, thank you. Thank you, Brother Stephen. Please. Tell us what we need to do to get right. We acknowledge that we are wrong. No, that's not what we read. They push back with violence. Verse 54, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Verse 57, and they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. We don't want to hear this. And they rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. 
He's talking about things we don't want to look at in ourselves, to acknowledge, to recognize. Let, get him out of here. Shut his mouth. Now, let me ask, when someone comes to you with an offense or some sin that they're concerned about in your life, how do you respond? Your spouse, your friend, your parent, your, whoever it is, how do you respond? With humility? Or, or is, there, is there this kind of impulse in you just to shut them down on the spot? Who are you to talk to me? That way. Well, let me start rattling off all the ways I see you failing. Thank you very much. You're so good at seeing me. Here's what I see. Just redirecting, just accusing, just pushing back on the guilt. We know it's there. They might be wrong. I'm aware of that. Not every accusation sticks, right? I mean, people accused Jesus. It didn't stick. He wasn't guilty. And yet, for us, I mean, gosh, oftentimes there's going to be something to it, right? Even if they're wrong. Here's, here's the thing, guys. Even if they're wrong, people who are so secure in the love of Christ and the forgiveness of, of their sin, His blood, the removal of their guilt, should not be so scared to look at it or to consider it or to talk about it. There should be this open heart. Somebody thinks they see something, tell, tell me more. If there is something there, I'm, I'm not afraid of it. The cross has dealt with the root of it. We can get this out. Tell me more. I want to grow in godliness. I, 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 it's, it's amazing. I, even as a believer, I, why? I mean, I, I might get why, you know, unbelievers might not be willing to admit their guilt. They might want to push back with all their might. But why is it still in me? When my wife brings something to my attention, or why? Why is the impulse to defend myself? You realize, you realize, I base my entire life upon the confession that I am a sinner in need of grace. Why, when someone comes to me and says, you know, I think you're a sinner, do I go, no, I'm not? Who are you to tell me that? Why do I push back? Tell me more. Yeah. Gosh, it goes deeper than I know. I want to grow, don't you? Push back doesn't work. This is Herod casting his accuser into the prison cell. Or putting the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter. It doesn't work. You can't silence it. It just further uh, engenders our madness. Third, insufficient dealing. And this one I have to cover quickly. Anesthetics. What I would call anesthetics. You got denial. You got pushback. And now anesthetics. I think you probably know what I'm meaning by this, but. Anesthetics are what we use to numb the pain, right? doesn't get rid of the problem, 
but it gets your mind off of it for a little while. And I would, I would uh, imagine that this is going on all around our city, one way or another. People anesthetizing their guilt by kind of reducing the narrative, something they can manage. You might do this, say, with uh, work. I, you, know, you spend a few extra hours in the office, whatever it is, you give all your time to the, the trying to climb the corporate ladder or to the tasks and projects. Because you know what? When you, when you successfully complete one of those things, you don't feel all that bad about yourself. And when they give you that paycheck or they pat you on the back or they give you the promotion, it, it anesthetizes the sense in you that something's wrong. Well, if they think I'm great, if I can accomplish this, I must be fine. And it distracts us away from the larger narrative that we are broken. That we are broken. And we can't fix ourselves. And we can't numb this. You might try to numb it with entertainment. Just let me turn on the TV and get out of my story for a moment and into someone else's. I don't like feeling what I feel. I don't like <laughs> the sense of guilt or brokenness. Get me into another story. Anesthetize me. Numb me for a bit. Or you might do this in the evenings when you... Pour a little bit more wine into the glass than you know is appropriate. Or when you eat just a little bit more chocolate than you know is reasonable. Just almost like a shot of pleasure to the arm. So that you don't have to feel so much of the pain. Oh sure I know it doesn't really deal with it but it numbs it for the moment. And what we find when we follow this out is that it does not work anesthetizing doesn't work it's not an answer to our guilt it only makes it worse and engenders further madness final final um, insufficient dealing what i would call the wash cycle the wash cycle denial pushback anesthetics and now the wash cycle maybe you deal with your guilt this way um you, you try to self-clean. You try to self-wash. You try to self-atone. You see your guilt. You, you're not denying it. You're not pushing back on it. You're not trying to anesthetize it. You see it. You just think you can fix it. Oh, I see it, but I'm going <laughs> to... Listen, man, 2018 is going to be different for me. I got my list of resolutions. They'll last through the first month, and then they'll fall off little by little as the year progresses. But we see our problems. We see our guilt. We see our sin, and we make promises to ourselves. Never again. Nuh-uh, not me. I'm going to climb up out of this. But you can't. The clothes you put in the wash today just end up dirty again tomorrow. Because the roots of this stuff go deeper than we can get to. Um, classic illustration of this sort of thing um, is actually found in Shakespeare's play, Macbeth. I was an English major, so bear with me. <laughs> 
I recognize this mind. What is Macbeth? Who? Something wrong. Who is Shakespeare? No, I'm just kidding. You, you probably know who he is. But there's this scene at the end of uh, Macbeth. So uh, Macbeth's wife in the in the play called Lady Macbeth. She has um, throughout the 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 play been kind of coaxing and encouraging her husband to kill um, the king because she has it in her mind that man if we can get the king out of the picture then Macbeth you get to rise to the throne and I get to sit there as queen with you so she coaxes her husband into killing the king and she literally gets the king's blood on her hands from the dagger that they plunge into his heart. Acts 5, scene 1, she's walking through the castle, sleepwalking through the castle. They got away with murder. They, 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 they are uh, in, you know, in power on the throne. But there is a guilt that is driving her mad. And so she's walking the castle. Asleep in the midst of night terrors, nightmare. And she's scrubbing her hands like this. Trying to wash, we're told. Trying to wash her hands. Talking to herself like a mad woman. And then she lets fly through the castle uh, halls and there echoes out these kind of three famous words. Out, damned spot. Will these hands never be clean? There's blood on her hands. And no matter what she does, no matter how much she washes, no matter how much soap, whatever, she can't get the spot out. Her hands will never be clean. The guilt remains. You're not going to wash this out. I'm reminded here of Jeremiah 2, 22. God addressing his people says this. Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me. You're not going to be able to clean this. But the, the radical thing, you guys, the crazy thing is that we are simultaneously aware and unaware of our guilt. We know it's there. We just have no idea how deep it actually goes. So we lie to ourselves. We deceive ourselves into thinking a little soap, a little cleaning. We can get this off. But it goes. It touches our very nature. It reaches into our hearts. And we owe to God for what we have done. And that awareness settles deep in every human soul. Not going to be able to get it out. And it drives us mad. Like Lady Macbeth wandering the castle at night, muttering to herself, like Herod haunted by the, the, the ghost 
as it were, of headless John. Or like David in Psalm 32, verse 3, when he says this, when I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away. It's driving me crazy. It's destroying me. The more that I let it settle in on me, it is destroying me. I can't deny it. I can't push back against it. I can't numb it. I can't wash it. So what is left for me to do? Now we get to the only way out. David goes on to lead us forward in this, in that psalm. When in verse 5, he says this. I acknowledged. I acknowledged my sin to you, God. And I did not cover my iniquity. I stopped playing games with it. And I... I owned it before you, God. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. It's amazing. Jeremiah, just a few verses after the one I just read there in chapter 2. In chapter 3, later, goes on to call Israel to the exact same solution. It's not lye, L-Y-E, or soap that gets the stains out. Here's what he says in Jeremiah 3, verse 13. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God. And later, verse 22, return, O faithless sons, I will heal your faithlessness. Own it before God. Stop trying to hide it. You can't. It will drive you crazy. Bring it to him. This is what's so amazing. This is what is so amazing. The only one who can truly help us. The only one who can truly deal sufficiently with our guilt is the same one who we so grievously offended in the first place. Did you hear me? Where do you go to free yourself, to, 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 to find healing from your guilt before a holy God? You go to a holy God. You run back to him because he's not just unimaginably holy he's also unimaginably unimaginably merciful and gracious ready willing able desiring to forgive if only we would come and yet it's so hard to do that but david jeremiah these guys in the Old Testament, they didn't get to see the half of what we now see, right? They knew that they needed to come to God for forgiveness, to acknowledge their sin, acknowledge their guilt before him. They knew that God was, was the Lord, the Lord was, was merciful and gracious, uh, steadfast in love, abounding 
loving kindness, knew all of that about him. That he would forgive their iniquity. But they had no idea how he would accomplish this fully for them in the end. They had no idea that God would send his son, holy, righteous, perfect son, and that our guilt would be laid upon him and that he would be paraded to the cross like a lamb led to the slaughter. And that our junk, the stuff we know, we know, it, 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 we owe something to God for it. We know justice is due us for our sin. That justice was exacted. Not from our account, not from us, but from Jesus as he hung there on the cross of God's righteous indignation. It's amazing. Isaiah 53, to draw a few verses from there. He had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. His soul makes an offering for guilt. Did you hear that? Whose guilt? Not his. Mine. We know somebody needs to pay for what we have done if God is holy. We know it. But God takes it on himself and puts it on his son. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. That's the only way to deal with it. It's the only way to sufficiently deal with it. To own it before a holy and merciful God. To confess in the light of the cross. The crazy thing is that Herod actually did. So, so David, Jeremiah, these guys didn't get to see fully how God would forgive them. Herod did. Herod did. Herod, um, we read there in our text back in verse 9 of Luke 9, sought to see him. He wanted to see Jesus. He wanted to see what was going on, if this was John the Baptist or what's the deal. Later, Luke 23, Herod finally gets to see him. Because Pilate doesn't want to deal with Jesus and the mess that it's becoming, he's, he, he sends Jesus in, you know, chains or shackles over to Herod. And standing before this man is the answer to his restless, guilty conscience, his madness. Standing before him is the one who can save him from it. But he sees nothing worthy of praise, but rather a joke to be laughed at. He puts a nice little robe around him, mocks him for a little while, and sends him back to Pilate where Jesus will be crucified. Though we're told Herod found nothing in him worthy of convicting, he would not release him. But he'd be killed for our guilt, for 
Herod's guilt. Is that amazing? That God takes our rebellion, he takes our sin, and in it, he actually shakes it up, works it out, becomes our salvation. Has men gathered around against the Savior in rebellion, unwittingly, they were also accomplishing, in a sense, the very means by which God would redeem them. His love is amazing. So the call this morning, the call is to come out of hiding. I recognize I'm talking to a lot of Christians, so that's fine. I know that, you know, God is with. I'm not saying we're not saved. I'm not saying, who knows? There may be some here that that is something that God is revealing to. Well, I've been in the church, but I have not been in Christ. But man, for all of us, Times of refreshing come from the Lord and his presence when we come and we just own it in the light of the cross. We get low so that he can lift us up. I'll just leave you with Peter's cry uh, to um, the Jewish people in Acts 3 verses 19 and 20. Just hear this. Repent, therefore, and turn again. That your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Did you hear that? When you own your sin, you stop denying, hiding, pushing back, numbing, trying to wash it. You just come to God saying, I'm broken. You own it. Times of refreshing come. Sanity comes back into the soul. You can be guilty and loved at the same time. You don't have to hide it. And then you can walk out in freedom knowing that you are forgiven, sinner though you be, because of Jesus. Jesus paid it all. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that what we deal with, this guilt that plagues us, God, the biggest problem we face, you have brought the answer. God, forgive us for all the ways we accumulate guilt upon guilt as we try to fix it ourselves or blame others. God, we just get low right now. We just get on our faces before you. We want revival in our hearts. We want renewal. We want to see what you've done for us afresh. And if there are some in this room who have not fallen before you, God, strike them down, I pray. In the best sort of way. Strike them down to heal them. Open their eyes to sin so that they might see the Savior and the answer to it all. In Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.